Good evening. Thank you for joining us this evening. You know what's interesting? Is that if you do a Google search for peacemaker, you know what comes up? Yeah, this image. Now, that's one way to make peace, right? Just pull a Colt single-action revolver from your holster and end any threat to peace. Is that what it means to be a peacemaker? Just to end the threat? Well, not exactly. At least, that's not what Jesus was talking about when he stated these words. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Yeah, I think before we go any further, we need to expound a little bit on what these Beatitudes are all about. And first and foremost, with the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving a character description. He is saying that all of these Beatitudes describe what a follower of Jesus should be like. Secondly, we're not talking about something natural here. You know, you sometimes hear people say, well, he's just easygoing or she's just mild and meek. And while it may be true that some people can just let things roll off their backs, that's not what it truly means to be meek. It's not what it truly means to be a peacemaker. These are not traits that anyone has just naturally. These have to be worked on. They have to be grown. And third, the Beatitudes are not random. There is a logical sequence to them. Each one builds on the other, kind of like Legos. What we see is poor in spirit comes first because there will be no one in heaven who's not first poor in spirit. And so a poverty of spirit is recognizing that I am nothing without God. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. And so we realize that as well. Once we realize the poverty of our spirit, once we understand who we are outside of Christ, it causes us to mourn, which is the second beatitude, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning over our spiritual condition, understanding that without Christ, we are nothing and that we have nothing. And so when we realize our hopelessness apart from God and it causes us to mourn, then we become comforted because we seek repentance. We experience joy knowing that we have salvation, right? So these build on one another, poor in spirit, mourning, and then we're meek. We understand that once we become poor in spirit and once we've mourned, we attain meekness, meaning that our will has been tamed to the will of God. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness and become merciful and truly become peacemakers. You get the idea. You'll also notice that there is a correspondence between the Beatitudes as well. The central statement seems to be verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the first three statements that precede this one speak of our spiritual need. Again, poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the fulfillment of that need. And each Beatitude that follows is a result of that fulfillment. But we also see a correlation between the first three and the three that follow. For instance, the merciful are those who realize the poverty of their spirit. That is the most essential step in becoming merciful, right? The man who is poor in spirit and is utterly dependent on God is the man who will naturally be merciful to others because he's been in their shoes. Next, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Who are the mourners? Well, it's those who recognize their state of being outside of Christ, the state of their soul outside of Christ. Who are the pure in heart? Well, those who mourn, so the two go hand in hand. One cannot have a pure heart until they have truly mourned. And then finally, we come to the peacemaker. And who is the peacemaker? Well, he is the one who is meek and gentle. 
The one whose will has been tamed and placed under divine control, like the meek individual we talked about. The one who lives in complete submission to the will of God. So we have this building, we have this correspondence, and they all tie together. So these are not random statements given by our Lord. And we also know that the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit is the one who exhibits these beatitudes. Paul's words in Galatians 5, 22-26 remind us of this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Fruit in this passage is the Greek word karpos, and it means produce of a crop, harvest, or deed. And so the fruit of the Spirit is the harvest, the produce, or the deeds that are produced when we allow the Holy Spirit to infiltrate our lives and take control of what we are and what we are doing. Notice also that Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit as singular. We often say fruits of the Spirit, but actually Paul uses fruit of the Spirit because it is singular with many manifestations. And then he goes on to list those manifestations or those characteristics, those nine traits None of these traits or characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit are grown easily. And we mustn't fool ourselves into thinking like we do sometimes with the Beatitudes that these are just natural qualities that some people have and some people don't. That some people's personality just naturally adheres to these things and others don't. Like the Beatitudes, these are God-grown. They are the result of when the Holy Spirit is controlling your life. And also, like the Beatitudes, there is a logical sequence here. There's a reason why Paul lists love first. Because you can't truly experience joy unless you have love. You can't truly experience gentleness and kindness and all these other things that are listed here as part of the fruit of the Spirit until you have first started with love. Can you really be self-controlled without agape love? So love comes first and all the others are really just a manifestation of love. You know, when I first started preaching, my kids were very small, and my wife was really a single mother in the pew. And some of you know what that is like. Many of you can sympathize. Kids can be very disruptive, and, and typically it doesn't bother me. Many of you have come up to me after services through the years and apologized because your kid was disruptive, and, and, and I don't notice it. I really don't. Very seldom do I ever notice it. And even if I did, I wouldn't say anything, and I certainly wouldn't be, be upset about it because I've been there. I know what it's like. My wife has had to control our kids in the pew when they were smaller. And so you do whatever you can to keep your kids preoccupied, to keep them still, to keep them from acting out, right? You give them, maybe, maybe you give them your keys or your phone or a coloring book or, or you give them food, something, anything, so that they'll sit still while that boring preacher goes on for 30 minutes. But is that what a peacemaker is? Is a peacemaker defined as that mother or father who is sitting in the pew with their child just trying to keep them quiet? Is that what a peacemaker is? And the answer is no, not exactly. Look with me at James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." 
this congregation of the Lord's people did not have peace. And the reason they didn't have peace is because they were quarreling and fighting. Their pursuit was not righteousness. Their pursuit was money, power, prestige, possessions, gratification of physical lust. And when everyone is striving for the wrong thing, then you get the wrong results. Often we see competition. We see people trample one another. We see people view their brother or sister as a rival. They seek their own good above everyone else's. There is no peace for the selfish individual. There's no peace when you're selfishly pursuing selfish interests. We're constantly at war with ourselves, constantly at war with other people, constantly at war with God when we're being selfish. You know what that's called? It's called a troublemaker, not a peacemaker. A pursuit of something different is what we need. A pursuit of peace, but not just peace, a pursuit of God. Because that's where all of this starts. You pursue holiness, you pursue righteousness, you hunger and thirst for it. That's the only way you're going to get it. You want an image of a peacemaker? You want an image of a peacemaker that's not a gun, not a Colt revolver? Here's a description of an actual peacemaker. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving in the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a peacemaker. A peacemaker is not just trying to make the church or the world a better place. A peacemaker seeks the highest good of all people. That's what shalom means. We talked about shalom last week. And shalom is about wholeness and fullness and completeness. And the Jewish rabbis taught that the highest task which anyone can perform is to establish right relationships with people. That is the thrust of Jesus' teaching. Not just here in Matthew chapter, uh, verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5, but throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout His earthly ministry. See, we often, we often view peace as the absence of conflict. That's it. If you want peace, you remove all disruption. You remove all conflict. You, you have fighting and unrest, and that's the opposite of peace. But biblical peace is not the absence of something. Biblical peace is the presence of something. Biblical peace can be experienced in even the most tumultuous of times. Just look at the third psalm beginning in verse 1. It says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. 
I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. What's going on here is that David is being hunted. A multitude of Absalom's men are in hot pursuit, and David's life was in danger, and yet he slept. Let me say that again. He slept. How could David lay down his head and sleep in the midst of such turmoil, knowing that he was Absalom's prey? How could he sleep under such circumstances? Because through it all, David had peace. You know what happens when you don't allow God to be in control? Do you know what happens when you refuse to give up the reins of your life? I'll tell you what happens. You never have peace. You will never have peace if you stubbornly demand to be in control. Because every time we drive the car, we crash it, don't we? Every time we take over in the driver's seat, we have a head-on collision with sin. There is no rest for the one who refuses to surrender to the will of God. David found peace in even the most traumatic of circumstances because he moved over one seat and he allowed God to drive the car. Look with me at Matthew chapter 8. Starting in verse 23, it reads, When he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, unlike David, I can, I can understand this situation a little better. I can understand why Jesus slept. I mean, after all, he could do anything and he certainly could control the weather. And that, in fact, would happen at one point. He slept through storms, you know, because he could control the weather. I sleep through storms. I hardly ever know that they're going on. So I understand this a little bit. But if I were one of the disciples, I'd probably be afraid. Seeing the wind and the waves, thinking that I was about to become a part of a shipwreck. But why shouldn't they have been afraid? Because Jesus was on the boat with them. There is peace in the presence of a storm because of the presence of our Lord. In Colossians 3.15, Paul wrote these words. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You know where Paul was when he wrote these words? He was imprisoned. Circumstances and conditions don't determine peace. Peace comes from the source. There's also Paul who wrote these words, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The source of peace is Jesus. He was sent to this earth to bring peace. He is the ultimate peacemaker. There is no peace without Him. As we talked about last week, sin fractures things. It causes brokenness. It fractures things with other people. 
fractures relationships. It fractures our relationship with God. It even fractures ourselves. It even causes us to be broken within ourselves because all of us are a walking civil war. All of us have this tug of war going on inside of us, kind of like when, when you see, uh, you know, whether it be on uh, cartoons or a television show where you have a, a little red devil sitting on one shoulder and a little white angel sitting on the other, and, you know, both of them are speaking into someone's ear, and you're trying to determine which one you, you, you should do. You know what's right, but you do what's wrong because that's more appealing. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. But Jesus came to resolve the war that's going on inside of us. He came to bring us peace in our whole being. He came to restore the relationship with God that was fractured and even restores relationships between other people. He fixes brokenness. He is the personification of shalom because it's in Him that we find wholeness and fullness and completeness. And once again, it's, it's Paul who sums all of this up beautifully. In Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20, he writes, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You know, the Bible is a book that's full of brokenness. The pages of Scripture are filled with stories of broken people. But the Bible is also filled with re's. R-E's. Redemption. Renewal. Restoration. Reconciliation. Revival. Repentance. And of course, resurrection. And do you know what all of these Rees are associated with? That's right. Peace. Let's look at one more piece of scripture before we get out of here. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, and beginning in verse 13, it reads, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're going to have a series coming up next year on all these elements of the uh, armor of God, but let's give you a little bit of preview to that series by looking at the gospel of peace for just a few moments. A peacemaker fights for peace. We are soldiers of salvation, and we must proclaim peace. No soldier fights only for his freedom. He fights for the freedom of his country. He fights for the freedom of those who cannot fight for themselves. And we must do the same. We must not be content to just keep peace to ourselves. We must share it with others. With our feet clothed with the gospel of peace, we must be prepared to run across rough terrain, to shout the good news that Christ brings the victory. Satan has been defeated. He's a loser. He cannot win this war. He is destined for the lake of fire and brimstone. And so his objective is to take as many souls with him as possible. And that should concern us. That should make us angry. It should motivate us to initiate the biggest search and rescue mission ever in an effort to recover all these casualties of war because there are a lot of POWs out there. A lot of spiritual POWs that have been imprisoned by sin. They are suffering from a life of captivity. They are weak and broken and they are hurting and they are desperate and they all need a hero. We need to be their knight in shining armor. 
peacemaking isn't just about us. It isn't just about fullness and wholeness and completeness for ourselves. It's about sharing shalom with others. It's about helping them fill that God-shaped hole in their heart, in their soul, so that they can find peace. You know, in the Greek language, peace is arene. And it can refer to harmonious relationships between men or between nations. It can refer to friendliness. It can mean freedom from molestation or the harmonized relationships between God and man accomplished through the gospel. And it can denote a sense of rest and contentment. All these things we've discussed. But the important thing to note is that none of this is possible. None of these things are possible without a connection to the source. Peace is the result of who you follow and the result of who resides in you. You know, a common greeting among Jewish folks, even today, is the term ma shlomka. Ma shlomka would be the equivalent of us saying, how are you? When you bump into someone on the streets of Jerusalem, you might say, Ma Shlomka. Do you know what Ma Shlomka literally means? It means, what is your peace? Like we stated last week, Shalom is a greeting. It's also used in farewells. So Shalom is something you say when you see someone and you want to say hello, you say Shalom. And when you leave their presence, you tell them Shalom. In other words, you greet people with peace and you leave people with peace. And so before we say shalom for tonight, I would like to leave you with this question, Ma Shlomka, what is your peace? And hopefully, hopefully your peace is found in a connection with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day. We thank you for this day that we've had to worship you, and we pray, God, that we are better because of it. May we be a people who live victorious lives. May we celebrate each and every day the fact that we have you, that we have hope, and that we have peace in a world of unrest. May we spread this peace to those around us. May we show the world what shalom looks like, and may we be a people who actively seek to make peace among us. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us, and it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.